Chapter Thirteen of the Ivory Child by H. Rider Haggard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, Jana. No breakfast was brought to us that morning, probably for the reason that there was none to bring. This did not matter, however, seeing that plenty of food accumulated from supper and other meals stood in a corner of the house practically untouched. So we ate what we could, then paid our usual visit to the hut in which the camelman had been confined. I say had been, for now it was quite empty, the last poor fellow having vanished away like his companions. The sight of this vacuum filled me with a kind of fury. "'They have all been murdered,' I said to Marut. "'No,' he replied with gentle accuracy. "'They have been sacrificed to Jonah. What we have seen on the market-place at night was the rite of their sacrifice. Now it will be our turn, Lord Macumazahan.' "'Well,' I exclaimed, I hope these devils are satisfied with Jana's answer to their accursed offerings, and if they try their fiendish pranks on us. Doubtless there will be another answer. But, Lord, the question is, will that help us? Dumb with impotent rage, I returned to the house where presently the remains of the reed gate opened. Through it appeared Simba the king, the diviner with the injured foot walking upon crutches, and others of whom the most were more or less wounded, presumably by the hailstones. Then it was that in my wrath I put off the pretense of not understanding their language, and went for them before they could utter a single word. "'Where are our servants, you murderers?' I asked, shaking my fist at them. "'Have you sacrificed them to your devil-god? If so, behold the fruits of sacrifice!' And I swept my arm towards the country beyond. "'Where are your crops?' I went on. "'Tell me what you will live on this winter.' At these words they quailed. In their imagination already they saw famine stalking towards them. "'Why do you keep us here? Is it that you wait for a worse thing to befall you? Why do you visit us here now?' And I paused, gasping with indignation. "'We came to look whether you had brought back to life that doctor whom you killed with your magic, white man,' answered the king heavily. I stepped to the corner of the courtyard, and, drawing aside the mat that I had thrown there, showed them what lay beneath. "'Look, then,' I said, "'and be sure that if you do not let us go, a yonder thing is, so shall all of you be before another moon has been born and died. Such is the life we shall give to evil men like you.' Now they grew positively terrified. "'Lord,' said Simba, for the first time addressing me by a title of respect, "'Your magic is too strong for us. "'Great misfortune has fallen upon our land. "'Hundreds of people are dead, "'killed by the ice-stones that you have called down. "'Our harvest is ruined, "'and there is but little corn left in the store-pits now "'when we looked to gather the new grain. "'Messengers come in from the outlying land "'telling us that nearly all the sheep and goats "'and very many of the cattle are slain.' soon we shall starve as you deserve to starve i answered now will you let us go simba stared at me doubtfully then began to whisper into the ear of the lamed diviner i could not catch what they said so i watched their faces that of the diviner whose head i was glad to see had been cut by a hailstone so that both ends of him were now injured told me a great deal his mask had been ugly but now that it was off, the countenance beneath was far uglier. Of a negroid type, pendulous-lipped, sensuous, and loose-eyed, he was indeed a very hideous fellow, yet very cunning and very cruel-looking, 
as men of his class are apt to be. Humbled as he was for the moment, I felt sure that he was still plotting evil against us, somewhat against the will of his master. The issue showed that I was right. At length Simba spoke, saying, "'We had intended, Lord, to keep you and the priest of the child here as hostages against mischief that might be worked on us by the followers of the child, who have always been our bitter enemies, and done us much undeserved wrong.' although on our part we have faithfully kept the pack concluded in the days of our grandfathers. It seems, however, that fate or your magic is too strong for us, and therefore I have determined to let you go. Tonight at sundown we will set you on the road which leads to the ford of the river Tava, which divides our territory from that of the White Kenda, and you may depart where you will since our wish is that never again may we see your ill-omened faces. At this intelligence my heart leapt in joy that was altogether premature, but preserving my indignant air I exclaimed, "'Tonight! Why, tonight! Why not at once? It is hard for us to cross unknown rivers in the dark. The water is low, Lord, and the ford easy. Moreover, if you started now, you would reach it in the dark, whereas if you start at sundown, you will reach it in the morning.' Lastly, we cannot conduct you hence until we have buried our dead. Then, without giving me time to answer, he turned and left the place, followed by the others. Only at the gateway the diviner wheeled round on his crutches and glared at us both, muttering something with his thick lips. Probably it was curses. At any rate, they are going to set us free, I said to Marut, not without exultation, when they had all vanished. Yes, Lord, he replied. But where are they going to set us free? The demon Jana lives in the forests and the swamps by the banks of the Tava River, and it is said that he ravages at night. I did not pursue the subject, but reflected to myself cheerfully that this mystic rogue elephant was a long way off and might be circumvented, whereas the altar of sacrifice was extremely near and very difficult to avoid. Never did a thief with a rich booty in view, or a wooer having an assignation with his lady, wait for sundown more eagerly than I did that day. Hour after hour I sat upon the housetop, watching the black kender carrying off the dead killed by the hailstones, and generally trying to repair the damage done by the terrific tempest. Watching the sun also as it climbed down the cloudless sky, and literally counting the minutes till it should reach the horizon— although I knew well that it would have been wiser after such a night to prepare for our journey by lying down to sleep. At length the great orb began to sink in majesty behind the tattered western forest, and punctual to the minute Simba, with a mounted escort of some twenty men and two led horses, appeared at our gate. As our preparations, which consisted only of Marut stuffing such food as was available into the breast of his robe, were already made, we walked out of that accursed guest-house, and, at a sign from the king, mounted the horses. Riding across the empty market-place, and past the spot where the rough stone altar still stood with charred bones protruding from the ashes of its extinguished fire—were they those of our friends the camel-drivers, I wondered—we entered the north street of the town. Here, standing at the doors of their houses, were many of the inhabitants who had gathered to watch us pass— Never did I see hate more savage than was written on those faces, as they shook their fists at us and muttered curses, not loud, but deep. No wonder, for they were all ruined, poor folk, with nothing to look forward to but starvation, until long months hence the harvest came again for those who would live to gather it. 
also they were convinced that we the white magician and the prophet of their enemy the child had brought this disaster on them had it not been for the escort i believe they would have fallen on us and torn us to pieces considering them i understood for the first time how disagreeable real unpopularity can be but when i saw the actual conditions of the fruitful gardens without in the waning daylight i confess that i was moved to some sympathy with their owners it was appalling not a handful of grain was left there to gather for the corn had been not only laid but literally cut to ribbons by the hail after running for some miles through cultivated land the road entered the forest here it was dark as pitch so dark that i wondered how our guides found their way in that blackness dreadful apprehensions seized me for i became convinced that we had been brought here to be murdered every minute i expected to feel a knife thrust in my back i thought of digging my heels into the horse's sides and trying to gallop off anywhere but abandoned the idea first because i could not desert marut of whom i had lost touch in the gloom and secondly because i was hemmed in by the escort for the same reason i did not try to slip from the horse and glide away into the forest there was nothing to be done save to go on and await the end it came at last some hours later we were out of the forest now and there was the moon rising past her full but still very bright her light showed me that we were on a wild moorland swampy with scattered trees growing here and there across which what seemed to be a game track ran down the hill that was all i could make out here the escort halted and simba the king said in a sullen voice dismount and go your ways evil spirits for we travel no further across this place which is haunted follow the track and it will lead you to a lake pass the lake and by morning you will come to the river beyond which lies the country of your friends may its water swallow you if you reach them for learn there is one who watches on this road whom few care to meet as he finished speaking men sprang at us and pulling us from the horses thrust us out of their company then they turned and in another minute were lost in the darkness leaving us alone what now friend marut i asked now lord all we can do is go forward for if we stay here simba and his people will return and kill us at the daylight one of them said so to me then come on macduff i exclaimed stepping out briskly and though he had never read shakespeare marut understood and followed what did simba mean about one on the road whom few care to meet i asked over my shoulder when we had done half a mile or so i think he meant the elephant jana replied marut with a groan then i hope jana isn't at home cheer up marut the chances are that we shall never meet a single elephant in this big place yet many elephants have been here lord and he pointed to the ground it is said that they come to die by the waters of the lake and this is one of the roads they follow on their death journey a road that no other living thing dare travel oh i exclaimed then after all that was a true dream i had in the house in england yes lord because my brother harut once lost his way out hunting when he was young and saw what his mind showed you in the dream and what we shall see presently if we live to come so far i made no reply both because what he said was either true or false which i should ascertain presently and because i was engaged in searching the ground with my eyes 
he was right. Many elephants had travelled this path, one quite recently. I, a hunter of those brutes, could not be deceived on this point. Once or twice also I thought that I caught sight of the outline of some tall creature moving silently through the scattered thorns, a couple of hundred yards or so to our right. It might have been an elephant or a giraffe, or perhaps nothing but a shadow, so I said nothing. As I heard no noise, I was inclined to believe the latter explanation. In any case, what was the good of speaking? Unarmed and solitary amidst unknown dangers, our position was desperate, and as Marut's nerve was already giving out, to emphasize its horrors to him would be mere foolishness. On we trudged for another two hours, during which time the only living thing that I saw was a large owl which sailed round our heads as though to look at us, and then flew away ahead. This owl, Marut informed me, was one of Jana's spies, that kept him advised of all that was passing in his territory. I muttered, Bosh, and tramped on. Still, I was glad that we saw no more of the owl, for in certain circumstances such dark fears are catching. We reached the top of a rise, and there beneath us lay the most desolate scene that I have ever seen. At least it would have been the most desolate if I did not chance to have looked on it before, in the drawing-room of Ragnall Castle. There was no doubt about it. Below was the black, melancholy lake, a large sheet of water surrounded by reeds. Around, but at a considerable distance, appeared the tropical forest. To the east of the lake stretched a stony plain. At the time I could make out no more because of the uncertain light and the distance, for we had still over a mile to go before we reached the edge of the lake. The aspect of the place filled me with tremblings, both because of its utter uncanniness and because of the inexplicable truth that I had seen it before. Most people will have experienced this kind of moral shock when on going to some new land they recognize a locality as being quite familiar to them in all its details, or it may be the rooms of a house hitherto unvisited by them, or it may be a conversation of which, when it begins, they already foreknow the sequence and the end, because in some dim state, when or how, who can say, they have taken part in that talk with those same speakers. If this be so, even in cheerful surroundings and among our friends or acquaintances, it is easy to imagine how much greater was the shock to me, a traveller on such a journey and in such a night. I shrank from approaching the shores of this lake, remembering that, as yet, all the vision was not unrolled. I looked about me. As we went to the left, we should either strike the water, or, if we followed its edge, still bearing to the left, must ultimately reach the forest, where probably we should be lost. I looked to the right. The ground was strewn with boulders, among which grew thorns and rank grass, impracticable for men on foot at night. I looked behind me, meditating retreat, and there, some hundred yards away, behind low, scrubbly mimosas mixed with aloe-like plants, I saw something brown toss up and disappear again that might very well have been the trunk of an elephant. Then, animated by the courage of despair and a desire to know the worst, I began to descend the elephant track toward the lake almost at a run. Ten minutes or so more brought us to the eastern head of the lake, where the reeds whispered in the breath of the night wind like things alive. As I expected, it proved to be a bare open space where nothing seemed to grow. Yes, and all about me were the decaying remains of elephants, hundreds of them, some with their bones covered in moss that may have lain here for generations, and others more newly dead. 
They were all old beasts, as I could tell by the tusks, whether male or female. Indeed, about me within a radius of a quarter of a mile lay enough ivory to make a man very rich for life, since although discoloured, much of it seemed to have kept quite sound, like human teeth in a mummy-case. The sight gave me a new zest for life. If only I could manage to survive and carry off that ivory, I would. In this way or in that I swore that I would. Who could possibly die with so much ivory to be had for the taking? Not that old hunter Alan Quatermain. Then I forgot about the ivory, for there in front of me, just where it should be, just as I had seen it in the dream picture, was the bull-elephant dying, a thin and ancient brute that had lived its long life to the last hour. It searched about as though to find a convenient resting-place, and when this was discovered, stood over it, swayed to and fro for a full minute. Then it lifted its trunk and trumpeted shrilly thrice, singing its swan-song, after which it sank slowly to its knees its trunk outstretched, and the points of its worn tusks resting on the ground. Evidently it was dead. I let my eyes travel on, and behold, about fifty yards beyond the dead bull was a mound of hard rock. I watched it with gasping expectation, and, yes, on the top of the mound something slowly materialized. Although I knew what it must be well enough, for a while I could not see quite clearly, because there were certain little clouds about, and one of them had floated over the face of the moon. It passed, and before me, perhaps a hundred or forty paces away, outlined clearly against the sky, I perceived the devilish elephant of my vision. Oh, what a brute that was! In bulk and height it appeared to be half as big again as any of its tribe which I had known in all my life's experience. It was enormous, unearthly, a survivor perhaps of some ancient species that lived before the flood, or at least a very giant of its kind. Its grey-black sides were scarred as though with fighting. One of its huge tusks, much worn at the end, for evidently it was very old, gleamed white in the moonlight. The other was broken off about halfway down its length. When perfect, it had been malformed, for it curved downwards and not upwards, also rather out to the right. There stood this mammoth, this leviathan, this monstrum horrendum, in former engines. As I remember my old father used to call a certain gigantic and misshapen bull that we had on the station— flapping a pair of ears that looked like the sides of a kaffir hut, and waving a trunk as big as a weaver's beam, whatever a weaver's beam may be, an appalling and a petrifying sight. I squatted behind the skeleton of an elephant, which happened to be handy and well covered with moss and ferns, and watched the beast, fascinated, wishing that I had a large-bore rifle in my hand. What became of Marut I do not exactly know, but I think that he lay down on the ground. During the minute or so that followed, I reflected a good deal, as we do in times of emergency, often after a useless sort of a fashion. For instance, I wondered why the brute appeared thus upon yonder mound, and the thought suggested itself to me that it was summoned thither from some neighbouring lair by the trumpet call of the dying elephant. It occurred to me even that it was a kind of king of the elephants, to which they felt bound to report themselves, as it were, in the hour of their decease. 
certainly what followed gave some credence to my fantastical notion which if there were anything in it might account for this great graveyard at that particular spot after standing for a while in the attitude that i have described testing the air with its trunk jana for i will call him so lumbered down the mound and advanced straight to where the elephant that i had thought to be dead was kneeling as a matter of fact it was not quite dead for when jana arrived it lifted its trunk and curled it round that of jana as though in an affectionate greeting then let it fall to the ground again thereon jana did what i had seen it do in my dream or vision at ragnall namely attacked it knocking it over on to its side where it lay motionless quite dead this time now i remembered that the vision was not accurate after all since in it i had seen jana destroy a woman and a child who on the present occasion were wanting since then i have thought that this was because harut clairvoyantly or telepathically had conveyed to me as indeed marut declared a scene which he had witnessed similar to that which i was witnessing but not identical in its incidents thus it happened perhaps that while the act of the woman and of the child was omitted in our case there was another act of the play to follow of which i had received no inkling in my ragnall experience indeed if i had received it i should not have been there that night for no inducement on earth would have brought me to kenderland this was the act jana having prodded his dead brother to his satisfaction whether from viciousness or to put it out of pain i cannot say stood over the carcass in an attitude of grief or pious meditation at this time i should mention the wind which had been rustling the hail-ripped reeds at the lake border had died away almost but not completely that is to say only a very faint gust blew now and again which with a hunter's instinct i observed with satisfaction drew from the direction of jana towards ourselves this i knew because it struck on my forehead which was wet with perspiration and cooled the skin presently however by a cursed spite of fate one of these gusts a very little one came from some quarter behind us for i felt it in my back hair that was damp as the rest of me just then i was glancing to my right where it seemed to me that out of the corner of my eye i had caught sight of something passing among the stones at a distance of a hundred yards or so possibly the shadow of a cloud or another elephant at the time i did not ascertain which it was since a faint rattle from jana's trunk reconcentrated all my faculties on him in a painfully vivid fashion i looked to see that all the contemplation had departed from his attitude now as alert as that of a fox terrier which imagines he has seen a rat his vast ears were cocked his huge bulk trembled his enormous trunk sniffed the air great heavens i thought i to myself he has winded us then i took such consolation as i could from the fact that the next gust once more struck upon my forehead for i hoped he would conclude that he had made a mistake not a bit of it jana was far too old a bird or beast to make any mistake he grunted got himself going like a luggage train and with great deliberation walked towards us smelling at the ground smelling at the air smelling to the right to the left and even towards heaven above as though he expected that thence might fall upon him vengeance for his many sins a dozen times as he came did i cover him with an imaginary rifle marking the exact spots where i might have hoped to send a bullet to his vitals in a kind of automatic fashion for all my real brain was contemplating my own approaching end i wondered how it would happen 
Would he drive that great tusk through me? Would he throw me into the air, or would he kneel upon my poor little body and avenge the deaths of his kin that had fallen at my hands? Marut was speaking in a rattling whisper. "'The priests have told Jana to kill us. We are about to die,' he said. "'Before I die, I want to say that the lady, the wife of the Lord—' "'Silence!' I hissed. "'He will hear you!' for at that instant I took not the slightest interest in any lady on the earth. Fiercely I glared at Marut, and noted even then how pitiful was his countenance. There was no smile there now. All its jovial roundness had vanished. It had sunk in. It was blue and ghastly, with large protruding eyes, like to that of a man who had been three days dead. I was right. Jana had heard. Low as the whisper was— through that intense silence it had penetrated to his almost preternatural senses. Forward he came at a run for twenty paces or more, with his trunk held straight out in front of him. Then he halted again, perhaps the length of a cricket pitch away, and smelt as before. The sight was too much for Marut. He sprang up and ran for his life towards the lake, purposing, I suppose, to take refuge in the water. Oh, how he ran! After him went Jana like a railway engine, express this time, trumpeting as he charged. Marut reached the lake, which was quite close, about ten yards ahead, and plunging into it with a bound, began to swim. Now, I thought, he may get away if the crocodiles don't have him, for that devil will scarcely take to the water. But this was just where I made a mistake, for with a mighty splash in went Jana too. Also he was a better swimmer. Marut soon saw this, and swung round to the shore, by which manoeuvre he gained a little, as he could turn quicker than Jana. Back they came, Jana just behind Marut, striking at him with his great trunk. They landed. Marut flew a few yards ahead, doubling in and out among the rocks like a hare, and, to my horror, making for where I lay, whether by accident or in a mad hope of obtaining protection, I do not know. It may be asked why I had not taken the opportunity to run also in the opposite direction. There are several answers. The first was that there seemed to be nowhere to run. The second that I felt sure, if I did run, I should trip up over the skeletons of those elephants or the stones. The third that I did not think of it at once. The fourth that Jana had not yet seen me, and I had no craving to introduce myself to him personally. And the fifth and greatest— that I was so paralysed with fear that I did not feel as though I could lift myself from the ground. Everything about me seemed to be dead, except my powers of observation, which were painfully alive. Of a sudden Marut gave up. Less than a stone's throw from me he wheeled round, and facing Jana hurled at him some fearful and concentrated curse, of which all I could distinguish were the words, THE CHILD! Oddly enough, it seemed to have an effect upon the furious rogue, which halted in its rush, and, putting its forefeet together, slid a few paces nearer and stood still. It was just as though the beast had understood the words and were considering them. If so, their effect was to rouse him to perfect madness. He screamed terribly, he lashed his sides with his trunk, his red and wicked eyes rolled, foam flew from the cavern of his open mouth, he danced upon his great feet, a sort of hideous Scottish reel. Then he charged. I shut my eyes for a moment. When I opened them again it was to see poor Marut higher in the air than ever he flew before. 
I thought that he would never come down, but he did at last with an awesome thud. Jana went to him, and, very gently now that he was dead, picked him up in his trunk. I prayed that he might carry him away to some hiding-place and leave me in peace, but not so. With slow and steady strides, rocking the deceased Marut up and down in his trunk, as a nurse might rock a baby, he marched on to the very stone where I lay, behind which, I suppose, he had seen or smelt me all the time. For quite a long while, it seemed more than a century, he stood over me, studying me as though I interested him very much, the water of the lake trickling in a refreshing stream from his great ears on to my back. Had it not been for that water, I think I should have fainted. But as it was, I did the next best thing, pretended to be dead. Perhaps this monster would scorn to touch a dead man. Watching out of the corner of my eye, I saw him lift one vast paw that was the size of an armchair and hold it over me. Now good-bye to the world, thought I. Then the foot descended as a steam-hammer does, but also as a steam-hammer sometimes does when used to crack nuts, stopped as it touched my back, and presently came to earth again alongside of me, perhaps because Jana thought the foothold dangerous. At any rate, he took another and better way, depositing the remains of Marut with the most tender care beside me, as though the nurse were putting the child to bed, he unwound his yards of trunk and began to feel me all over with its tip, commencing at the back of my neck. Oh, the sensation of that clammy, wriggling tip upon my spinal column! Down it went till it reached to the seat of my trousers. There it pinched, presumably to ascertain whether or no I were malingering, a most agonizing pinch like to that of a pair of blacksmith's tongs. So sharp was it that, although I did not stir, who was aware that the slightest movement meant death, it tore a piece out of the stout cloth of my breeches, to say nothing of a portion of the skin beneath. This seemed to astonish the beast, for it lifted the tip of its trunk and shifted its head, as though to examine the fragment by the light of the moon. Now, indeed, all was over, for when it saw blood upon that cloth, I put up one short piteous prayer to heaven to save me from this terrible end, and, lo, it was answered. For just as Jana, the results of the inspection being unsatisfactory, was cocking his ears and making ready to slay me, there rang out the short, sharp report of a rifle fired within a few yards. Glancing up at the instant, I saw blood spurt from the monster's left eye, where evidently the bullet had found a home. He felt at his eye with his trunk, then, uttering a scream of pain, wheeled round and rushed away. End of chapter 13